Welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm your host, Antal Ronneboom. Today, we're thrilled to have Scott Belsky, Chief Strategy Officer and EVP of Design and Emerging Products at Adobe, joining us again on KindredCast for a conversation that delves into the world of creativity, innovation, and the ever-evolving tech landscape. Scott is an entrepreneur, an author, and an investor. And prior to his current role, he was Chief Product Officer and EVP of Creative Cloud at Adobe. Scott founded Behance, a leading creative platform, and served as CEO until Adobe acquired the company in 2012. Scott is also the author of The Messy Middle and Making Ideas Happen, and was an early advisor and investor in Pinterest, Uber, Sweetgreens, Carta, Flexport, and many, many others. Scott, you're our first returning guest on KindredCast. In the last 21 months since you were first on with my colleague Alex Michael, we've seen the launch of ChatGPT and generative AI. We've seen a boom in funding of AI startups. Adobe announced its largest acquisition to date of Figma, and you launched Firefly, laying the path to transforming Adobe Creative Cloud, and you took a new role also as Chief Strategy Officer of Adobe. We're thrilled to have you back to hear your unique perspectives on how the pace of innovation around AI in the last year will impact the process of creativity, as well as what it means for Adobe in the broader landscape. Thanks for having me back. So let's start by spending a few minutes on your new role and the creative soul of Adobe. Yeah. Adobe has really hit the trifecta of software for digital creators between the creative cloud impact on, on content creation. You've got document cloud's ability to optimize document distribution and security, and then experience cloud also enhances digital experiences and commerce. Tell us a little bit more about how this portfolio fits together and also what the strategic growth opportunities are for these three businesses in the years ahead. Sure. Well, yeah, I think that um, the soul you know, of Adobe is in fact creativity, and that was the vision of the founders. And I think that that is really what our brand is known for. When you think about the worlds of digital experiences and marketing, they're only as good as the content that fills them. The decision that certainly predates me to buy Omniture as a company and build the whole digital marketing, digital experiences part of the company, which has now grown through a number of acquisitions over the last decade and a half or two decades, that was a conviction that these worlds in some ways were coming together that the old world where everything is made by a very small group of creative professionals and then is thrown over the wall to some different group somewhere in the world that does marketing, these worlds are coming closer together. I think one of the key drivers of that is the fact that brands need to think and act in real time these days. It's not just putting an iconic spot three times a year on a commercial on television. It's actually about engaging in the conversation with the customer every day, real time, and participating in memes and pushing on social media and constantly engaging with an audience that requires marketing to be reconceptualized, if you think about it. And so when I think about the strategy for Adobe, I think about basically lowering the floor and raising the ceiling across all of these businesses. I think about more people being able to create than just the creative professionals. That includes marketers getting into that tent. They never had the skills before to actually participate in creating, making variations of things, trying things, pushing things out as social media marketers. Now they can get into the tent. So it's like lowering the floor, getting more folks to be able to participate, and then also raising the ceiling of what's possible and better digital experiences. I mean, when every brand floods the zone with content over the coming years, we're going to be drawn as consumers to better content, better digital experiences. And so we got to raise the roof a little bit and help creatives actually do things that they never thought were possible as well. And I think if you take a step back, you're like, wow, creativity and marketing 
are actually not only adjacent, but they actually are going to start fueling each other because how an experience performs in market is going to generate data and that data is going to make better content and that content is going to make better experiences and then the data is going to make better content. If you abstract yourself, you see this cool digital experience flywheel happening. And to me, that's the strategy of Adobe. Yeah. And as you think about the foundations that cut across all the three main verticals of the company, there's obviously uh, underlying technology. You've got AI powering uh, many of the different clouds. At the same time, the go-to-market, you're serving many of the same enterprises. Do you see the synergies of this portfolio coming together more as time goes by? Well, really, when I came back to Adobe as chief product officer about six years ago, the challenge was to make sure we actually get to the cloud. We called our subscription offering Creative Cloud, but customers were not using cloud documents. There was no such thing as cloud documents. There were no mobile products that connected to the desktop products. There were no libraries and services that integrated workflows across products. And the plumbing to do certain things like deliver AI capabilities through the products, et cetera, none of that was there. And so objective number one was to build that underlying platform that not only allows workflows across products and a lot of this digital experience flywheel stuff to take flight, but it also outfits the teams to innovate and ship. When you have an amazing team building some core technology, making it available as a new standalone product was not a good strategy. Making it surface within Photoshop and with Adobe Express and all these other places all at once, that's a strategy to really get more ROI on every like innovation dollar that we spend. So that is the underlying platform and set of services that are making a lot of this come to life are absolutely essential in our strategy. And also now that we're realizing that a marketer who spends their life in a product like Adobe Experience Manager and has an asset that they want to make a change to, not in two days, but in two seconds. They don't have time to go to a Creative Pro in some other department or some agency and wait a week or so to get something. They need to do it now. And so surfacing a capability like Firefly or even integrating a set of capabilities like Adobe Express in that moment where the customer needs it, that's the platform bearing fruit. And you're obviously also investing down the path here more in collaboration, which brings more of the different uh, expertises in the enterprise together. Let's talk uh, for a second about M&A, part of your role as chief strategy officer. You're no stranger to M&A as a company. Over the last 15 years, you've often used M&A to add complementary new software and analytics solutions to the Adobe portfolio. There's many larger sort of billion dollar plus deals in that history, including Macromedia, Omniture, Marketo, Magento, and Workfront. This last year, you did a out of sorts acquisition of Figma, your largest acquisition to date for $20 billion, getting you deeper into creative collaboration across the enterprise. If you look back at the historic M&A that you've done, can you talk a little bit about the formula for success that Adobe's had? Because many of these franchises have been very successful over the years. What is the framework that you're sort of using to judge M&A going forward? What's a good deal? What's a bad deal for Adobe? Sure. Well, for Figma, this was a classic kind of adjacency opportunity. We don't have developers as customers. And the idea of not only being a company that generates assets, but also really getting into the stitching of those together for product experiences and having customers that are developers that sort of owning that handoff is a really exciting opportunity for us. So we're excited about the product design and development segment. And, you know, of course, that's still in the regulatory process. In terms of M&A, generally speaking, a few things I would say. First of all, I have an exercise with my strategy team called Edges that will someday become the center. And there's some acronym for it that I can't even remember. But we meet every other week 
and we review edges that we think may someday become the center. And we're looking at whether it's adjacent, totally different markets that may become very important for the workflows of our customers or people that they work with, whether it be uh, totally new opportunities that would augment our business in a unique way, but we have some special capability or synergy to bring to the table or some knowledge on the go-to-market side. I mean, we're always sort of brewing edges. And I think that's how you have to think about it. I mean, otherwise you're doing lazy M&A, which is just something that is core, that it just adds to your core. I'm more interested in strategic M&A that I think is about socializing one of those edges and getting excited about it. When you look at M&A in the history of Adobe, a lot of our leaders came through acquisitions. And that's one thing that I think is unique about our culture. Some companies acquire businesses and say, welcome, forget everything you knew before. This is how we do it here. Adobe, we tend to welcome people in and really try to learn from them and actually empower them. And a lot of folks, myself, David, who runs the business and is president of digital media business, he came in through Macromedia. There's a number of us that have come in through acquisitions. And so the talent and the culture fits like super important to us. And I think that's one of the ways we graph talent on and graph a company on. Frame, you know, a recent acquisition we made in New York, a little north of a billion dollars. This is a team that really understood collaboration at its core DNA. The founder was a video editor, so he really had empathy with our customer. He and I took long walks around the reservoir during COVID and got to know each other. He's still, you know, not only running Frame, but also taking on responsibilities around our collaboration agenda. So I think that's the framework for a very successful acquisition is an edge we're super excited about and become socialized with and also a team and a leadership that we feel will graph well onto the company. Makes sense. So I go back to the first conversation we had in detail a number of years ago and Adobe at the time in Creative Cloud was facing a unique challenge. You were a leader in creativity for the enterprise at the high end of the premium end. And you're beginning to see the emergence of prosumer platforms that were beginning to come in with freemium models and making it possible for anyone to create off of mobile devices. That was our, I think our first conversation. And since then you launched Spark for Mobile and Express, and you've really reinvigorated the product portfolio. People know companies like Canva, Pixar, and others that have emerged. But what has been this journey and challenge of pivoting Adobe to go after many of these new use cases and creativity? And what does that mean in terms of the emerging path going forward in product design and your roadmap? Well, I mean, personally, I've always been motivated by my frustration with how hard creativity is and how inaccessible it is to so many people. And so this idea of creativity for all has always been a bit of a driving mission for me personally and also for our team. The truth is, is that a lot of consumers, a lot of prosumers, communicators download products like Photoshop. People have the desire to be creative, but then they fail out of the funnel oftentimes because it's hard. And very few withstand the hours of YouTube videos and everything else to really become proficient in some of these industrial grade products. I always saw this opportunity in that funnel with my team to deliver something else. And the question is always what that is. We had two parallel efforts, really, over the last decade or so. One was to make these products easier and more accessible, just really nailing the first mile experiences, the startup experiences, the training modules, the tooltips, you know, all the things that help people get started and feel successful in these professional products. But then the other opportunity that we explored 
even starting almost 10 years ago, was more of these consumer-friendly, accessible products that would realistically be delivered as mobile and web apps. But the thing is, in a company, you can't really nail an entirely different type of go-to-market and platform and everything else unless you are all in and see it as a transformation for the business. What we made as a decision several years ago was with Adobe Express, this was going to be the most important thing in the company. That was a real exciting and rallying cry to not only build a new platform to power this that would really help anyone around the business bring technology and capabilities to these consumers and everyday users, but also really strategically think about Adobe Express is almost like the light version of everything across Adobe. When you go in and you say, how many creative professionals do you have? Okay, how many other people ever work with them? Well, that's everyone. Everyone wants to take an asset and use it in a presentation. Everyone wants to make something for social media. Everyone wants to take data and make a better compelling infographic. So we wanted to make Express the ultimate creativity for all product. And it was a two-year replatforming effort, a couple years iterating and testing in market, and then also bringing some really compelling services and capabilities from our flagship products that we didn't think anyone else in the market had, but everyone would love. And so that's kind of where we are now. Express is probably one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing business in the company. And it's an exciting moment to deliver on this mission. So AI and machine learning has been a big part of Adobe's messaging for a number of years, right? I remember Sensei and the AI foundation layer across your businesses. You've been doing, you've been carefully layering AI into your products already over the years, but now you've launched Firefly, this great new technology to drive visual AI enhancement, generative fill, et cetera. This product, like others that are pursuing AI platforms for third parties, is also potentially the beginnings of an API type business, right? Where you can begin layering in Firefly, not just into Photoshop, but into third party applications. What does that path to powering other platforms mean for Adobe, including third-party platforms? Well, I think whenever you build your own models, and also when you decide certainly to make it available to third parties, you better have a lot of conviction that you are doing it in a way no one else can, and that you have this real competitive advantage. We had a very clear view of how these models should be trained, the nature of the content that should and shouldn't be used for commercial use of these models, and how we needed to indemnify our customers by ensuring that the training was done in a certain way. We also wanted to focus on categories where we had deep expertise, because there's a lot of other learnings we have in imaging and video and sound and other areas where we can apply those learnings to how the model's actually designed and actually delivered and the interfaces for the consumer. Those are the convictions that made us go all in here. What we did is we also simultaneously said, okay, we're going to make this available in a bit of a playground-like experience so that people can play. We recognize with any new technology, novelty precedes utility. People like to come and play with it a little bit before they discover the use cases for their everyday work. And that data of how people were using it and the feedback we got from our customers really informed how we brought it into our products. But we're also getting a lot of inquiry now from third-party products saying, hey, I have a use case for image generation or object removal or any of these capabilities enabled by Firefly, and I just would love to get it as a third-party API. We have announced we're going to get into that business. We already have some sort of design partners that we're working with, and we're off to the races there. But I think that AI is the stitching that ultimately brings a lot of these clouds together that we were talking about earlier. 
It allows you to do things in a very natural language way. It's a super empowering technology. And also, funny enough, hey, AI, there's some problems with it with a lot of use cases because of the hallucination. And a lot of the companies that are building products based on these large language models, they're realizing that the hallucination is a problem. Like if you're a lawyer or a banker or anyone else and you're getting sort of hallucinated data and information, that's a problem. The weird thing about creativity is that hallucination is not a bug, it's a feature. What creatives actually want is variations of what they have in their mind's eye. Isaac Mizrahi, the famous fashion designer, once said that creativity is a mistake of the eye. And if that's true, well, we want mistakes of the eye as a service to some degree. We want our customers to see lots of variations and possibilities and discover better solutions to the problems they're solving. That's a perfect use case for generative AI. And I think that's why we've been really quick and successful in getting it commercialized because it's kind of obvious. You've talked a lot about creativity being innovation on top of many other people's ideas before as well, which is interesting. Isn't it? Well, yeah, creativity is the world's greatest recycling program. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, you say it better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's always been the case. Everything starts with a mood board, but when people can just start to speed through their thoughts in real time and just pump out images that help inspire them, like that's also going to change the way people start creating. Since you're primarily a product person or product yep. guy uh, throughout your career, how does that influence corporate strategy and corporate development for Adobe? Because it's less about financials, it's less about synergies and, and so forth. At the core, being a product-centric talent, what does it mean in terms of how you think about strategy and M&A? Well, I think having the design organization and the corporate development and strategy teams in the same organization is a really interesting thing I haven't seen done before, but to me makes perfect sense because design helps develop the prototypes of what could be. And when you're doing strategy and you're making organic or inorganic investments, you're always postulating what might be. And so to have the design team help show you as opposed to lots of people in rooms telling each other, I always like to say a prototype is worth 100 meetings. And to have the product and design muscle to inform strategy, I think is super helpful. When I help drive decisions in our company, I use design to show. And oftentimes, even as recently as last night in an airport on the phone with our leadership team, I was saying, can we please wait until we see the prototypes for this? Like we're talking around each other. We're making a decision. We've got to see the prototypes. So I think it's a superpower for corporate development and strategy to have design. But truthfully, I actually think great, great companies are design-driven, which means that design is used in all these ways across the organization. But most companies are just not built that way. Design was sort of regarded, especially amongst companies that are decades old, as sort of like an internal agency. You throw things over, you get it back over the wall, and then you do what you want with it. And I've always been on a mission to change that. So if you look at prior transformational waves in tech, going back to the PC revolution of the 80s, we had the Netscape consumer internet moment of 95, 96, and then we had the launch of the iPhone and mobile computing in the late 2000s. After that, we saw the, the emergence of SaaS and cloud computing in the 2010s. These were huge waves for the tech industry that unleashed innovation. They unleashed a number of companies that weren't expected prior to those moments. When you think about AI, particularly that generative AI moment that happened late last year and into this year, how important is that and how high does it rank as a transformational wave compared to these prior waves? I think it's just as relevant. I think this is the new platform shift that is going to be remembered for at least another decade or two ahead as like the AI moment. 
I think that's for two reasons. Number one, it is enabling a step function, better interface and experience for people to work with applications. We're entering an era where you no longer have to learn an app because the app learns you. It meets you where you are. Anything that you want to have achieved can be accomplished through natural language. And so the learning curve for humanity to use technology has been flattened dramatically. And that's important for the enterprise with all these complicated products everyone's trying to use all day to get their work done. Like suddenly they can just do it. It changes the nature of the types of people you can hire. And it also radically compresses the costs of a lot of functions within an organization. And it frees up capacity for people to do higher order tasks. So you're going to have you know, massive improvements in productivity in organizations. You're going to have human capital allocated far more effectively. And you're going to have, again, this flattened learning curve where suddenly people are able to accomplish things and cover far more surface area of possibility for every decision that they have to make. So that's super exciting. Now, that's great for big companies and the companies, of course, that are building these models, et cetera. One other thing I'll just say, though, is this is also amazing for small businesses because small businesses start getting the superpowers that were only usually reserved for big businesses. Small businesses can have customer service centers. They never could afford that maybe before. But now with AI and the radical compression of cost, they can have their own customer service center with maybe two people, but with the effective workforce of 200 people. And so suddenly you might see a lot of small businesses as it relates to the number of people employed and the number of capital that they started with actually become very big businesses in the way that they are actually able to reach and build like a real profitable business. So I'm actually super bullish about the really, really big businesses that are building these models and have that data advantage and the go-to-market advantage. I'm also super bullish about the small businesses that are going to use these technologies in radical ways to compete. And if there's one area I'm concerned about, it's actually everything in the middle. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what it all means from an industry revenue perspective? We've seen on the consumer side, you know, companies like MidJourney and even the many of the chat GPT alternatives build subscription models and people are spending money to access these services, but they don't feel long-term advanced, so to speak. On the enterprise side, we've seen companies like Microsoft, Salesforce, as well as with Firefly, announce enhanced sort of subscription packages. And it looks like it's going to obviously be an upsell to many existing enterprise applications, making them smarter and, and more helpful, more efficient for the user. What is that all going to mean in terms of the revenue opportunity of these big existing software companies like yourselves? Well, I think that the AI standalone products, some of whom you mentioned, some of them will become bigger and more vibrant, dynamic companies, but some of them are going to become the prodigies and CompuServes of the era. I think you actually need to have a dynamic stack and an offering for people not just to play and get something quick, but also like do a lot more with it. That has been our approach. And I think Microsoft and others are trying to bring this technology into the workforce people already use every day to give them hop, skips, and jumps through their work, but then also to light up new possibilities where the customer already is. That is our strategy. And as it relates to revenue, first of all, when you can deliver more value to the customer, you get better retention, you get better growth. When you deliver more value to the customer, you have the opportunity to capture more value. Also, when you make this technology even more fundamental to workflows in ways that really saves the customer time and money, then you can charge even more for that. That's been our business model, basically, since we commercialized Firefly capability, which is we said, hey, it's layered into all of our products. You get some of this in everything just for the price of admission. And if you start to power use and it becomes like even more useful to you, 
we launched a generative credits model where you can then go above and beyond your allocation. And it actually perfectly aligns incentives with our customers and with our product teams because our product teams want to save our customers time. And so they're incentivized to find new and vibrant ways to light up AI. And the customers, when they get more value and save time, they're willing to pay for it. And now you've also seen in some of the most recent results, the number of companies that are now riding on top of these middleware models to access AI LLMs is staggering, right? I think it was 18,000 or so reported yesterday. That are mounting yeah. the LLMs? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's probably going to be a four to five mainstream big market LLMs, which I'm happy about, that there's going to be choice and there's going to be different strengths and weaknesses across them. And then I think there will be specialty category models like the ones that we're building for creativity and marketing, and then other companies will build them for healthcare, et cetera. And then there will be lots of companies that are built on top of these, and they're going to be different types of businesses. We'll see. One of the staggering stats we saw really early in this journey was this comment that 40% of all code late last year in GitHub was being driven by AI. And there were you know, speculation that a lot of that would go towards AI fairly quickly, completely changes the landscape for software engineers. In many different categories, you can think of AI really driving productivity, but it also makes human existing tasks redundant. What are we talking about as we look forward five to 10 years as to how AI is going to impact the workforce? Notably, like, is it going to power our own ability to create more and to create more interesting things? Or is it actually going to make, in some ways, as AI gets more powerful, humans redundant? Well, listen, a few things. First of all, the people that are most at risk of AI are the people who don't use AI. So we have to augment the way we work. If you're an engineer or a creative professional that refuses to play with this technology, you're at risk. I think that's important to say, because these are new instruments of productivity. These are new superpowers that we need to be able to run with in order to be competitive in whatever we're doing. But if you look at the history of technology, engineers have become more productive every year for like two decades or more. And yet we keep hiring more engineers. And the question is why? And the answer is because humans want to always do more. Like companies, they've done two products. Now they want to do three products. If they get more capacity out of the engineering team, they want to do four products. So they want to make it available in more regions. So they want to make it better with more tiers and more capabilities and more features. So we have this desire to always do more. And I actually feel the same way about creators, like creative professionals. If you can get 50% more productivity out of your creative team of 10, are you going to want fewer than 10 or are you going to want more than 10? Well, maybe you'll actually say, wow, since I get more creativity per person now, I actually want more people so I can do more content across more platforms and better experiences that compete with my competitors and whatever else. So I do think that there's that mantra of more. And unless you're a private equity owned penny pinched business, I do think that we're always going to want to have more human capital that brings you know, more ingenuity per person as a business advantage. My outlook is positive. I think that we're going to stop doing as much mundane, repetitive work. We're going to be freed up for higher order work. And the nature of humans managing systems will change as a result of that. You said earlier this year in your top nine uh, transfer 2023 that we'll soon approach a moment where our eyes can no longer verify what we're seeing, yeah. right? This plays into issues like fake news and other uh, dynamics that we're all rapidly beginning to deal with. But you talked about moving from a trust but verify paradigm to a verify then trust paradigm. Can you explain to us what that means in terms of creators and digital consumers of content? Sure. Well, I remember it was maybe five years ago or so where I saw a demo of a feature in After Effects, one of our motion graphics tools called Content Aware Fill. And it basically allowed you to move an object from video. 
you could literally just remove a person, including its shadow and its dust and its footprint and everything. Whereas you could have done that before manually and it would have taken days, frame by frame. Now you could do it in seconds using AI. And it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, we need to be creative about what can go right with this, but we also need to be creative about what can go wrong. And at the time, our team was exploring this idea of content authenticity. And how can we help people understand how content was edited or how it was made so they can determine whether they can trust it or not? We knew from some other research that finding bad actors is a cat and mouse game. Screening an image or video to see if it was edited is always going to be tricked by somebody. But if we can help good actors stand out and actually show transparency over their content and how it was made, that's like a super empowering thing and helps people. And so that's what actually we've been focusing on. And we founded this nonprofit effort. It's now an open source consortium called Content Authenticity. of over 2,000 participants, including Canon and Nikon and a bunch of other players in hardware and software. And what this means is that content credentials get added to an asset so that you can see exactly how it was edited, what model was used, if there was generative AI in it. And they have a lot of transparency and attribution in every image that circulates the internet. So the idea is, is that in the future, and again, this is all open source and free for any tool or other maker of creative tools or anything can use. Imagine the world where we go on social media and we see video or imagery and some of it has no content credentials, and a lot of it does. And it says, New York Times, made in this product, edited with this product. And then suddenly, as consumers of media, we can say, hmm, I'm going to verify content and determine whether I can trust it first. So that's what I meant by that. And I do think we are entering this era where we will no longer be able to believe our eyes. Now, we see synthetic people that look like famous people saying things with that actual voice. This is going to get ubiquitous super quickly. And I think we need a way to determine how something was made. Yeah. Adobe Creative Cloud platforms used a lot by uh, players in the movie industry. Right. And Hollywood is beginning to see the repercussions of AI, potentials around script writing, potentials around actor replacement, and so forth in the future. Tell us a little bit about how AI will impact Hollywood from your perspective as a key software and technology provider to the creativity industry. Well, my hope is that it unlocks better digital experiences, full stop. And I think about entertainment and Hollywood in particular as like core and periphery model. There's the core, which is making new franchises, like coming up with these incredible storylines, vivid characters, amazing writing, counterintuitive ideas. LLMs are good at intuition, but they're actually not so good at counterintuitive stuff. That's where the creative mind comes in. And then I think that as this core is made, there's tons of stuff that has always happened on the periphery. Fan fiction, riffs, social media memes, all that kind of stuff. We have to adapt to a world where that periphery stuff, a lot of AI is going to just explode that. And brands can either fight it or they can celebrate it. And I do believe that smart brands over time will celebrate it and maybe even outfit those people to use models trained on characters in their films and stuff, because that's a form of marketing and engagement. And they can actually focus their core creative talent on making new ideas. I think one critique of Hollywood is that they keep making the same sequels over again. The plots don't change. Maybe this is an opportunity for Hollywood to just focus on more ingenuity per person because a lot of the sort of redundant repetition, localizing things to different countries, translation, a lot of that stuff is going to be done by AI. Maybe that actually empowers creativity. Does it ultimately lead to more higher quality content? It absolutely will. And it will also have a longer tail of other stuff. Okay. Curation will be important. 
let's talk a little bit about the path forward for Firefly. At Adobe Max, just recently, you announced Firefly 2.0, and some of the demos you showed were stunning in terms of the advancement, in terms of what it does to image creation and so forth. What is the path forward over the next couple of years? What should we expect to be able to do with Firefly? Well, I think that we should expect to have a much more natural way of making anything in our mind's eye and also editing it with AI. One of the things we showed was this Firefly image editor experience. And this was sort of a sneak. We didn't release it yet, but we showed this idea of being able to just touch and move anything around in an object and it instantly generates the pixels that were behind it. So you have two people standing next to each other and you move one person so they're in front of the other person in the photo. Everything is just automatically generated in real time right behind them. And it starts to unlock this idea. Photoshop was made famous through layers. Suddenly everything and everyone is a layer and anything can be manipulated and changed and moved around. And so it's just this like infinite possibility set for the editing experience. When I look at technologies like that, I think about it for the creative professional and what it unlocks for them and also what it means for the everyone else, including the marketer and the enterprise, but also the student in third grade. This is really transformational tech that hopefully makes us more creatively confident. That's one of the other things. So sad, right? As humans, we basically had our peak creative confidence at age five when everything got put on a fridge and teachers always gladly said how wonderful our work was. And then we kind of realized that there were critics around us and other people had skills we didn't have and we lost creative confidence. So some of these technologies you're seeing are going to restore creative confidence, which is just a great thing, I think, for humanity. So last year, when OpenAI and Stability and others came out with their generative AI LLMs, a lot of the expectation was that that would be where the value would sit in the industry. As we've gone through this year, we've seen a tremendous amount of value creation from the GPU players like NVIDIA. We've seen the cloud infrastructure players doing quite well on the back of more queries and more compute usage. And then we've also seen players like Microsoft yourselves make the access to these LLM models easier. Yep. One of the big questions we get is where are the profit pools in this industry? Are they actually in the LLMs or are they in the infrastructure or are they ultimately in the applications and use cases? Well, I think models will be important. Obviously, however, to me, the go-to-market and the actual interface where these experiences happen, I always feel is the most important thing. I use the analogy of in technology, it's this infinite game of slap a hand where the hand on top always wins. So the question is, what's the hand on top? These LLMs are underneath. It's the interfaces that people interact with. Now, eventually, if people have a superior interface or a existing interface they love, LLMs can be somewhat interchangeable, by the way. You could argue that some LLM solutions will become commoditized. You can also argue that some of the most incredible LLMs that are actually super expensive to operate may only be needed for certain functions. There's a lot of stuff we do where we, we might be able to use a local model at some point to do certain things that we actually don't even need to have cloud services enable for us. And I think that smart technology will route what we need in our everyday towards the right sort of model to generate that. And some of that could be locally, some of that could be in the cloud. And so there's going to be like a hybrid AI world that we're living in. And I do think there will be a lot of commoditization there. And again, to me, it's all about the human experiences and where they happen. That's where you have the opportunity to capture the most value. Right. We're going to change topics briefly and talk about your book, The Messy Middle. 
This is really a very interesting guide on the journey you went through at Behance, both founding the company, going through all the twists and turns, and then ultimately selling the company. And you talk about the hardest part really being that middle part of the journey when there's a lot of twists and turns and setbacks and so forth and how to get through them. But I wanted to ask you just in conclusion, a question about what you call the final mile. And one thing that many startups, as well as growth companies face today is that we've gone through this booming investment cycle the last three years during the pandemic. And many companies have had to reset lower ARR growth, ultimately having to make decisions about people and headcount and valuations for many companies are way out of whack compared to where they did their final valuation rounds. If you have advice to founders and growth company CEOs in this environment, based on some of the learnings from the messy middle, what is your advice to those companies that now face important decisions around how to return capital to shareholders, ultimately potentially sell companies, IPO companies, and make other decisions? Well, the challenge with the environment we were in is that whenever we had a problem, we would throw money at it, and we could because there was just too much capital in the system. And so in some ways, the analogy is, you know, resources are like carbs, whereas resourcefulness is like muscle. And we weren't forced to develop our own muscle as teams and as cultures and as leaders. And now we are. So there's a great refactoring. We have to refactor how our team works before we hire more people. We have to refactor just how we make decisions so we're speedier and that we are more resourceful in every way, shape, and form within the organization and how we manage. This is a great opportunity to build that muscle of resourcefulness. We are all in the gym right now, whether we like it or not. Let's take advantage of that. I think that some of the best decisions obviously are the hardest ones, but they focus our team as a result. I feel like the analogy of bonsai cultivation is right, where you're killing these like beautiful little branches to make the trunk stronger. Right now in these businesses, people are deciding, let's call our other plans and focus on the one that matters. Let's make sure that we constrain our focus on which customer we're ultimately serving. Let's make sure that we can demonstrate unit economics in this business and that we can be profitable. And that's the cycle that we're in. So I think it's also prompting a lot of questions around what the final mile is for this business. How do we make sure that our team is protected? I was just talking to an entrepreneur earlier today who has a new financing round that he's raising with a lot of structure in it. And everyone's being like converted to common across earlier investors. And the conversation we had was about his employees. Like, how are you going to merchandise this so that they don't feel like they've lost value, even though there's so many more years left in their journey here? What do you do to re-up them? How do you also make difficult decisions about who to keep and who you can't afford to keep? So these are the tough moments. But what I always remind myself, a few things. First of all, you have to be the merchandiser of the narrative for your team. Your team is in the backseat of a car with the windows blacked out, driving cross-country. And they're going to go stir-crazy if you don't constantly merchandise the progress they're making to them so that they will continue to make progress. Progress begets progress. I think the other thing I remind myself sometimes is DYFJ, do your effing job is what it stands for. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves, we have to make those tough decisions. And if you're listening and you're one of those leaders of a business going through some of these difficult moments, don't put off the tough decisions that are inevitable. Make them yesterday. Scott, thank you for sharing your insights and vision with us today. Adobe's role in the world of creativity and design is truly transformative, and your leadership is instrumental in shaping the future of digital art and innovation. And we're very much looking forward to seeing what's next. And uh, thank you again for joining us today. Proud to be a friend, and just thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Scott. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and feel free to rate and review it wherever you're listening. Stay tuned for more Kindred Cast conversations from leaders in business and beyond. Thank you.